Welcome to my podcast, Today's Dream, Tomorrow's Reality. My name is Vicki Poole, and I'm a master transformational coach specializing in habit change. And this podcast is sponsored by The Enlightened Peach. And it's this podcast is all about embracing our mosaic life. And some of you may ask, what is a mosaic life? Well, it is recognizing that all the pieces of our life, the good, the bad, the indifferent, have all come together to make us who we are. Change any one thing and we are different. With that in mind, I invite you to embrace your perceived imperfections and celebrate who you are. This podcast is unedited and raw, just like life. And I'm your host. And today I have a special guest with um, with me and I will be sharing her info in just a moment. But if you have any ahas or questions, please leave a comment or a voice message and remember to like, subscribe and share. So now let's get started. All right. So this this beautiful woman right here is Shannon Bredicher. Bredicher? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Oh my goodness, you I've I've slayed it already. All right. So she we we met in another group and uh, we neither one of us can remember why we reached out to one another, but um I think there are no accidents. So she is definitely the person that we need to be talking to today. Um she is a certified life coach. She is the parent of two children and one has special needs. Um, she is on Instagram and TikTok, and so I'll be sharing all her info um, in the in the comments later. But um, Shannon, just go ahead and um, just tell a little bit about what you're doing with your life coaching and what your focus is now, um, and then we'll just go from there. How about that? Yeah, sure. Um, so it, again, Vicky mentioned that she'll put my tags in there, but um, my title kind of is the connection coach. And so what I really focus on is finding deeper and more meaningful connection. And I am a very strong believer through my own experiences, through what I've kind of observed and witnessed working with other people is that to have the most meaningful connections outside of yourself, you really need to start with a connection that's an inner, like deep self-awareness um, within your own self so that it feeds those other connections. And, um, so yeah, that's kind of where I started from. And then I kind of mentioned to you a little bit earlier that I'm, I'm looking at possibly branching out a little bit more. So, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, um, the connection thing is, is amazing, but I will say a lot of people struggle and I'm sure you find this too with connecting with themselves because it, it can be kind of scary sometimes, you know, to see your shadow, to see the things you don't like about yourself and, and face it and create something different. Um, so is that primarily what you're helping them do is connect with that inner stuff that they're afraid to look at? Absolutely. And um, I find such a big piece of it, too, is just people don't know themselves very well. And I find that both, you know, it has to do with your childhood wounds, but it has to do with the society that we live in as well. And kind of the outside pressures and expectations has to do with um, your your family wounds as well. So your mother wound or your father wound really come into play for that. And so even just knowing what your own core values are as a person. 
what your own boundaries are. Like people have such a hard time identifying those and then even more so respecting them for themselves, which then yes. means how does anybody else respect those about you? Right, right. Well, you know, I know uh, a lot of people feel like if I if I hold to this boundary, then they're not going to love me anymore. And, you know, so boundaries are a really big deal um, because it's almost that, you know, wanting to fit in kind of thing, wanting love. And for some reason, we've been inundated with things from society that say that you can't hold your boundaries and still have connections and love from others. And um, so it's a really hard thing for people to do. Absolutely. And so many people take a boundary very personally as well. Again, because of how, you know, we've kind of looked at the way society has gone or your own upbringing, but a boundary is not about pushing people away, right? It's about how the person can stay in your life and stay connected to you in a way that feels safe to the individual. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, it's, it's interesting because, you know, one of the things in one of the workshops that I created, and this has been a while back, um, one of the things that we talked about was boundaries and, even people that thought they had strong boundaries didn't have strong boundaries. And that's one of the things that me personally, that I have a little bit of a hard time with sometimes is for, you know, you, you, you want to, you want, I'm a people pleaser kind of person. And when you're in that place, you know, a lot of times it's, well, I can go ahead and do that because they really need me right now or they need this or they need that. And we stop looking at what we need and we just start focusing on everybody else. Do you find that that's what's going on with a lot of the people that you work with? Yeah, absolutely. And again, so I can completely resonate with that too, Vicki, where throughout my whole life, I have been a people pleaser <laughs> and everybody's, you know, their, their emotions come before mine, their expectations come before mine, their needs come before mine. And you get to a point where it's like, well, I've just completely abandoned all these major pieces of myself. So how do I expect anybody else again to kind of respect it or meet me where I need to be met or meet my needs? And so, yeah, that's what a lot of people struggle with where, you know, they get so so scared that their boundary is going to push somebody away that they themselves don't even uphold their boundaries. And it is really unfortunate because, again, you see so many people just struggle through relationships and connections and whether those are relationships with family members or with intimate partners like it really impacts so many areas even with co-workers like it's everywhere yeah yeah and I find that I have clients um, or I have in the past that the the co-worker thing was where they struggled them they could have the boundaries at home they could have the boundaries you know everywhere else but when it got to work it was like it almost they had this idea that what everybody needed from them at work was more important than anything. And right. that's where they struggled, like working late without getting paid and all kinds of things. So I was really blown away when I found that out. And so let me ask you a question. So when you're working with people with connection and the boundaries and different things, so what if they're, if they're struggling, like if they're in this workspace and they feel like they can hold their boundaries everywhere, but there, what is some kind of advice that you can give someone that might be listening or watching 
that might help them to kind of get on that um, the idea of having the boundaries at work and what can that look like? Yeah, so sometimes the first thing I find with people having difficulty establishing boundaries, and again, if you're looking at the workplace specifically, it's kind of about the the limiting beliefs that they carry. Mm-hmm. And so there's often a le- like a limiting belief that's like, well, if I have a boundary at work, I might get fired or, you know what I mean? Like they, mm-hmm. they think they're, they're replaceable. They're not as worthy. And so for me, that's something that I start with looking is, okay, what beliefs do you have about this? If you uphold your boundary and again, often it's, I'll get fired or I won't ever get promoted or I'll be viewed as like not a team player or things like that. And again, often you start to go deeper with, okay, where does that limiting belief actually come from? Did did somebody through your workspace actually indicate this to you? Often the answer is no. And it, it usually goes back to childhood, right? So for some reason, somewhere along the, the life path of childhood, a limiting belief of I have to work hard and I have to do this and I just have to follow like all the rules and not question anything and be be kind of a good little soldier. Mm-hmm. And Again, so that's that's a big one I find. It's just that limiting belief piece. And then following that, I mean, it comes with confidence too, right? Then you have to look at somebody's confidence in who they are. And so again, this is where that interconnection comes in again, because right. it's like, who are you as a person? What do you value as a person? What is important to you? And sometimes it's like, well, maybe you're just not in the right workspace. Maybe yeah. you need to change your job. And that's yeah. a reality too, right? Yeah, definitely. And um, so one of the things that I've I've noticed um, too is that if you watch any television, the successful people are the ones that are at the office when everybody else is already gone. They're the ones that it's like they have their their phone attached to them and they will go to the job at any moment. So we're kind of brainwashed in some ways to think that that is what you do to be successful. And so people kind of just adopt that as a belief in themselves, especially if they've had something that happened in their past that might've alluded to that. Uh, Maybe they had a parent that was that way, you know? Um, And, but, you know, there are so many things that we are shown on TV and different things like that, that are so far from the truth, but people adopt them very quickly. Yeah, exactly. And that's where, you you know, that creates those limiting beliefs for yourself because you, you, again, society just has a way of making you believe there's this one path, this one way of life. And that goes through the education system, it goes through the work system, it goes through so many different systems, right? And so to your point, we're almost brainwashed to just have these beliefs that really do limit what we're capable of limit our confidence limit you know our well-being overall and a lot of times people don't even see that yeah yeah don't even get me started on the machine of uh <laughs> the education system and how it's just the same way so maybe to, we should have a conversation about that <laughs> meant to roll out just worker bees you know um and there's a reason why being an entrepreneur is not the first thing that people go to, you know, um, but I want to make sure I touch on things because in your bio, you said you're the mom of a non-bio child and a special needs child. So does that mean you adopted a child? 
Um, so my 14 year old, I've been raising them since they were about four and a half years old. Okay. Um, bio mom just couldn't really be in the picture, um, in and out of the picture sometimes, but overall wasn't, uh, wasn't able to be in my oldest child's life. So yeah, so I've been, I've been mom for the last 10 years and we have a great, great bond. And again, so another piece of connection, right, where you have people who are blended families or have stepchildren and things like that. And um, So I've experienced in that area as well. Yeah. So do you find that those kind of people that need that are the ones that gravitate, uh, gravitate to you the most? Um, I've had some family stuff. And mm -hmm. again, I'm, I kind of mentioned that I'm trying to segue a little bit because I would definitely like to take a little more of an avenue working with families and parent children relationships. So yeah. So yeah. your special needs child, is it autism? Or what is the, the special need? If you don't mind my asking? No, I don't mind. It's it's a bit of a complicated disorder. It's a rare okay. disorder as well. So it's called optic nerve hypoplasia, septo-optic dysplasia. And Ooh, that's a mouthful. <laughs> yeah. Essentially, um, it has to do with the developmental period where the optic nerves are being developed in utero. And so her optic nerves are present and there's there's such a spectrum of this disorder as well. So some kids don't have any optic nerves developed at all. Some have one side more developed. And anyways, in my daughter's case, um, they're present, but they're they're very underdeveloped. So they're very, very small. And because that development is all happening within, you know, the head, the brain, it can impact other parts of the brain as well. So there, there can be like different sections of the brain missing for some kids and so on. For my daughter, her pituitary gland is actually offset as well. And so that can cause issues with her hormones at any point throughout her life. Currently, um, so she's considered legally blind and she's growth hormone deficient. So she receives growth hormone treatment therapy weekly. And so does that mean she's smaller than she should be at her age? Yeah. So she was, so she was very tiny at birth anyway. She was five pounds. Um, but I, I'm petite structure as well. So doctors weren't too concerned. Um, and then it was about three months old when she was diagnosed with optic nerve hypoplasia. And then she did her stim testing for her hormones. Everything was normal. And so about two and a half years old, that's when they started to see her growth was kind of plateauing. Okay. And so that's where it was like, okay, we need to get her on growth hormone now because she's not producing enough of it herself. <clears throat> so, so yeah, she was a lot smaller than most of her peers and, now she's honestly like she's been on it again since she was two and a half and she's going to be eight in February and she's pretty much like on par with her, her peers. So. Okay. So if she's doing the growth hormones, does that affect her other hormones as well? So that she might have, um, you know, moodiness. Um, I know some hormones can affect like facial hair, which she's too young for that now, but is that some of the things that would possibly be going on? Yeah. So it's a possibility. They haven't seen it, um, occur regularly, I guess I would say it's not, not consistent. I guess it's an individual basis, but it can have like cause the onset of puberty to start a little bit sooner. Um, 
we have zero like signs of any of that. So I'm not too concerned at this point. And how old did you say she is? She's going to be eight in February. Eight. Okay. Well, just FYI, even without hormones and all that stuff, I started my period when I was nine. So did my daughter, you know, um, so did my sister. Um, so, you know, and I often wonder when somebody's, you know, like 12 or 14, I'm thinking, what? You know, of course, when I was nine, to be honest with you, I thought my mom had taken us to some classes to know what's supposed to happen and all this stuff. Well, they kept talking about it in this class about when you become a woman and all this stuff, right? So I was nine years old, started my period. I thought I was a woman now. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't look at it as anything bad or anything like that. I was just so excited that this had happened because I'm a woman now. So I thought all these other children were still children. <laughs> Isn't it funny how we see things as kids? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's just it. I mean, my my 11 year old started at it, or sorry, my 14 year old started at 11. So we're going to be, she's going to be eight soon and it's not that far off. So I'm not too concerned that uh, the onset will happen early. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so I want to go back to when um, she was born and how did soon did you realize that she couldn't see? Cause I mean, with the little ones, you know, you, they're looking around all the time and you always think that they can see what you're doing and that you're moving and they sometimes are moving for sound and not vision. So how long did it take for you to notice or did the doctors notice it first? So I noticed it. Um, I also have a background in special care counseling. Okay. So, um, Perfect mom have, for this. Yeah. A little bit. kind <laughs> <laughs> of set up for this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so she was, again, just about three months, and that's still fairly young. But I was, like, watching her on one of her little play mats one day, like, on her back, and she has the dangly things. And I was just kind of watching her, and I was specifically watching her eyes because I felt like there should have been some sort of eye contact or looking towards me, like, I'm mom, babies are always, like, entranced by mom, and... um. And there really was none of that. And I had said it a couple of times to my husband and, um, you know, we were kind of like, well, we don't know. She's still so young. It's, it's hard to tell. And so I was like, I'll bring it up at her next pediatrician appointment. And so I did. And the pediatrician there at the time was like, no, there's nothing wrong. She's just like she was tiny at development and so it might take a little bit longer for her eyes to better develop and her eyesight to better develop but there's no concern and I guess just you, you call that mom's intuition or mom's gut and I didn't like that answer but I took it for what it was at the time and then um another another kind of backstory our whole um city was evacuated due to a wildfire and so during the time that we were evacuated, um, we were in another city for three months. And I was like, well, she, I need to keep her up with her pediatrician appointments and stuff. And so I got a new pediatrician while we were in a new city. And right away, I mentioned, like, I was like, I'm really fine. She's not tracking. She's not even looking towards me. 
like there was really nothing and so right off he took a look at her eyes and stuff and her size and he was like on the ball he was like I think I know what this is and he's like and if it is we need to make sure that her hormones are all in place because um so like when you think of cortisol cortisol can stop functioning for her at any time and that can lead to very very serious implications and including death right and so he's like we need to get her tested right away get her hormones checked and god for wildfires right a little bit (laughs) (laughs) yeah and he was great where again this is a rare disorder so i really don't expect many pediatricians do know about it or really um you know pay attention to it and he picked it up right away sent us to an ophthalmologist she did the eye exams and stuff and right off she could see that the um, optic nerves were underdeveloped and so then from there it was the, the stim test at the hospital which again at that age everything was fine so that was lucky um yeah so that was kind of how how she was diagnosed Okay. So how did you handle that? That's a pretty, you know, because we all want to have healthy babies that can see and hear and speak and grow. And so it's got to be pretty devastating to to see that this, because no matter what the, the problem is, it's going to be a bit of a challenge as they're growing up and maybe throughout their entire lives. So how did you handle something like that? So when she was first diagnosed, it was really difficult, um, really heavy for me, my husband. Um, there was a lot of moments where, again, because we had our older child and we'd seen all the, the, the kids steps, you know, learning to ride their bike, learning to tie their shoes and all this. And all I could think about was, well, she's never going to do that. She's never, gonna, I'm never going to sit down at the kitchen table and be able to color with her. I'm never going to be able to mm. teach her how to ride a bike. I'm never going to be able, like, you just go through all these things that it's like, oh, everything's going to be so different. She's not going to have the the childhood that you thought she would or that you wish she would. Yeah. Um, so that lasted for a while. And then the other part was like, I joined some Facebook groups or Facebook support groups for specifically ONH and um, septoptic dysplasia. So there's enough of it and that there's a Facebook group? They're seeing more and wow. more cases. And I wonder no why. Do they know? So, no, there's, they've done genetic testing. They've done like, they used to, like back when they started seeing an increase in cases, they used to think it had to do with a young um, maternal age. So mothers conceiving at a young age, but this has now been completely debunked. Like it's across the board. You can have women in their twenties having children with ONH, or you could have women in their thirties, forties having kids with ONH. Like, so they really don't know what the cause mm-hmm. is. Yeah. Um, there's more of a speculation it's environmental, but what exactly they still don't know. Um, but yeah, so I joined these Facebook groups and both like it is supportive and it is good to have a community around it but then it's also really intimidating and scary because you see so many people posting about their children's cases and like I said there's such a spectrum for this like there's some kids who are non-verbal there are some kids who are have like no mobility so you see it all and then it's just it's almost overwhelming right where it's like yeah gosh like what is she actually going to be capable of and again with my background a little 
little less daunting because I start to apply my education and my own experiences with other people's children. And it's like, no, we just got to do what we need to do to keep her progressing, keep her going. And um, and I would say probably around six months, like we had returned back home and got all the resources in place and stuff. And I had stopped kind of worrying in that sense because it was like, no, she's going to be capable of what she's going to be capable of. And nobody knows what that is until we get to those points. Right. Right. So what did you, how did you use your expertise and help her to progress? So um, so I'm assuming that when you're talking about helping people with this kind of thing, that there must be some kind of protocol or something that you've developed that helps people to not only deal with all this emotional stuff that goes on within the parent, um, because you mentioned connecting with the child and I guess, working with them in a different way so that they can be as much as they can. Am I, mm-hmm. am I, am I right in that? Yeah. So okay. a big thing is just combating expectations. And again, a lot of those societal expectations, and then this is where education system mm-hmm. comes into play all over again. And it's really, for me, a big piece. And this is again, where I would like to, um help parents more as well is the advocate advocacy piece mm-hmm. because it's so hard to know what you need to advocate for how to advocate and what you actually yeah. have access to right right and so because I have a background and I've learned about so many resources different types of therapy for you know xyz disorders or disabilities I'm very aware of those things. And so as soon as like we got back home, it was like, no, we're getting her into physio. We're getting her into uh, OT. We're getting her into speech and language. We're getting her um, into early intervention. Like there was all these resources through the hospital and otherwise private. Um, But again, so many parents don't really know how to ask for those. Yeah, I wouldn't know, you know, if I had gotten some kind of diagnosis, diagnosis like that, I was like, ah, you know, it's like, now what do I do? And if your pediatrician is not versed on what all this means and what to do, then you're just kind of like sitting out there with no idea, right? Exactly. And I never even mind, like when she did start school, Going into the school system, I was like, I know I need to really demand and ask for what she needs because nobody's prepared for for this disorder for her. Like, it, I think it, the stats on how many teachers actually encounter a visually impaired or blind child are so low. And then never mind because of her disorder, it causes other issues and developmental delay and stuff. So um it was really a godsend that we had with the school because she had a fabulous principal, fabulous teachers and um, educational assistants all throughout her, her school life so far. Um, but yeah, they were all like really willing to meet me where I needed them to meet us mm-hmm. for her to be successful in school. And like, I wanted her in an integrated classroom. I didn't want her. Um, I was going to ask about that because that, you know, it, it's, um, I think a lot of times when they put the children into a classroom that is just children, just like them, then, you know, they never learn how to 
blossom in the real world. Mm -hmm. And there's so much more benefit too, even just for the other kids to be around children yeah. with special needs, right? Because then they, they learn how to interact with them differently. They learn more about, okay, somebody's a little bit different than you, but that really doesn't change anything. You can still interact with them. You can still play with them. And again, we saw so much of that for Chloe, which was such a blessing that so many kids were just very, very intrigued by her, but like just so much love came from them. Like they absolutely loved having Chloe in the classroom. And um, yeah, again, that was just such a big piece for us that I was like, no, I want her. I don't want her to be segregated. Yes, she didn't do all the academic things that the, the other kids were doing, but she was just included in the classroom. So again, just that social aspect was so important. Yeah, yeah. So how does she like school? She loves school, which again, as a parent with a child with special needs, that is like <clears throat> such a blessing as well, because it, it's one thing to you know have your regular daily struggles with the child, um but then that to have a child who you know hates going to school and you have to force them like that would be so much harder I find and definitely there are parents who deal with that as well um well I had I, I had to deal with that with a child of mine that there was not a damn thing wrong with him he just hated school and it was like <laughs> oh my god you know it was like a torturous thing every single day, making him do his homework, forcing him out of the bed, forcing him dressed and getting him to school. And it was like, I, I couldn't imagine that with also a special needs child too, because it was pretty intense with a child that he just didn't want to go. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so again, the child with special needs, chances are <clears throat> there's a comprehension piece too, where they don't even understand why they would have to go to school and they're being forced to do this and yeah it, again I can imagine that parents who deal with both sides of those it's really really tough and um such a, an internal struggle as a parent too right um but no she she loves school and we're very very grateful for that and um yeah so how does she navigate home uh, without being able to see and I know I'm probably asking questions that don't make a <laughs> I mean anything but it's like I'm just always curious I am um, because well, well let me just back up uh it's totally different but the it's a little bit the same as I have always been fascinated with sign language and mm -hmm. so for a long time you know I was going to sign language classes and I even joined some meetups that were for sign language and you know and I would get there and you couldn't tell who couldn't hear because everybody was signing you know it took a while to figure out who could hear and who couldn't um and it was just fascinating and I even started meeting one, one with one of the non-hearing people and having them teach me sign language which was really difficult um mm -hmm. or it was for me but you know and I know some of their stories about how they dealt with things when they were little. And so I would just, I'm just curious, you know, how, how, and, and I guess if you've never been able to see, it's like, it's just, it's just what you do, but maybe how has it, because you've had the other one and you can see the difference. How has it been that, that she's had to develop all of these different skills that maybe your other one doesn't have. So she's pretty fascinating. Like despite her lack of vision, despite her um, 
comprehension delays and things like that, her language delays. She has really adapted to just figuring her stuff out. And again, it's just been so fascinating to see. Like she she skipped um crawling. She went right to walking because for her, the motivation of being on her belly and lifting her head, most babies do that so that they can see what's around them. Right. She obviously didn't care about seeing what was around her because she couldn't. So I she, thought about that. Yeah. Yeah. She had no interest in crawling or anything like that. And so she went straight to standing and walking and she was very very wee at the time um but it was like she how just, old was she um I would say she was I'm trying to think now one and a half or, when she started like really standing and holding her weight and then she was about two when she started walking and but she was tiny right like again she was such a tiny little baby and um we have some pictures of her where it's just like she's standing and holding my husband's hands and she's just like she looks like she's this big compared to him like she's so small but um yeah so she started walking and it was like once she was walking and on her feet there's no stopping her and so for us it, I knew it became really important to label things throughout the house like everywhere so the coffee table is here. The couch is here. The counter is here. And kind of taking her around, just feeling stuff. And like, she learned the layout of the house so quickly. And because at first, um, some of her specialists or intervention workers wanted her to use some sort of either a cane or they actually have like little kind of trolley ones too, so that she wouldn't like trip on things or run into things. And I was like, she really doesn't need it. Like she has learned the layout of the house so well. And like, she knew where the stairs were, she started doing the stairs and that was terrifying for me. <laughs> um, bad. Yeah. And so she's just been really, really good about that. And then uh, same thing at the school, like she does use her cane at the school, but once she's like gotten the layout of stuff, she, she, she'll use the schools because there's other students in the hall and stuff. So avoid tripping and this and that, but she knows like where to go to the office, knows where to go to the gym. Um, yeah. Well, just, I know you're easy. in, in Canada, so I don't know if it's the same as here. Like here, I know that they have like an IEP. So, and I don't really even know what that stands for. Um, but I know that when there's a child that has something special that they need help with, that they may have an advocate that helps them get from one classroom to the next. Um, and they even make allowances for if they have a physical disability that it may take them longer to get from this destination to this destination. And um, so I know um, I had somebody that had a young child that their IEP was that they had a hard time with tests and things. So they would have a special person that would verbally give them the test and things like that. So is that some of the things that you're talking about when you're talking about the stuff at the school for your daughter? Yeah, so she, so in Canada here, we have educational assistants or we have teacher assistants and an educational assistant is generally um, very specific to a child with a disability and they generally work one-on-one -on -one with the child so some kids will have an EA that might be a split EA so kind of working between two kids in the classroom or so on Chloe uh again just with 
her disability with her comprehension stuff uh she has a one-on-one okay yeah very so cool there is somebody with her all the time um and for me that was just such a necessity because it's it's a it's a safety concern like if she's out on the playground for example and a stranger made their way over and took her by the hand and said chloe come with me she would leave with them right like yeah, there's just yeah. such a safety issue there uh she could wander off and get close to a street and you know what i mean like yeah so for me it was, it was very important that i was like no she needs to have somebody one-on-one with her because it, there's too much risk if she doesn't um as she's getting older too you know we have to start considering bullying and things like that where if a kid brought something to her and was like here chloe eat this she probably would put it in her mouth not knowing what or you know the intention is even so again for me it's always been a and that was something we actually struggled with because we switched schools this year we moved and uh the school was not prepared in having a one-on-one ea for her and so that did not go over well and uh so how do you handle that Uh, so we were, so I always ask for a meeting prior to the school year. And so I requested this meeting, the, um, pretty much the whole team was there. There was the vice principal, um, the classroom support was there. And then there was two people from district, which isn't usually typical, but I'm glad that they were there that day. Anyways, and so I kind of asked if, I'm like, do we know who her EA is? Because I like to know ahead of time to start preparing her, like what who her EA, what her EA's name is gonna be. And like we're going to school to see Miss So and so. And anyways, and they kind of looked at me and they're like, oh, she's not gonna have a full-time EA. And I was just like, excuse me, what do you mean? And they tried to been it as well we really like to foster independence and really assess where kids are at and what their needs actually are and this and that and I was just like no I'm like you don't understand Chloe's diagnosis then and um I again I come very prepared so I had her past um we have IPPs instead of like report cards for children's special needs they're individual plans and so I brought her past IPPs. I had brought even a letter that I had asked her EA from the other school that she had been at for a number of years to write up what Chloe's day-to-day is kind of like and what she does to support Chloe. And so I had that on file as well. And I was like, you guys need to read this because you don't understand what her needs are and what the risks are. And anyway, so they kind of skimmed through briefly and they're like, okay, can we make photocopies of this? And Anyways, they went and did that. And then the two people at district, they were like, well, we need to get funding to have a full-time EA. And I was like, yep, then you need to get funding because <laughs> I'm not sending my child to school where, again, she's at XYZ risks. And anyways, once they kind of heard everything I had to say and explain about her needs and her disorder, they saw the paperwork, they kind of were kicking themselves going yeah we didn't expect this and we really didn't realize that you know she had such high needs and anyway so it took about two weeks for them to get the funding get uh, an EA hired full-time and it all worked out well and again she's still loving school everything's working out good so but yeah it was just uh yeah so that, this is where I think of though were parents who yeah don't have that confidence to advocate for themselves they 
want to trust everybody who is the the specialist or the professional mm -hmm. and like especially if they start saying well we want to foster independence and because we all want that for our kids right um that would be so i i think maybe they didn't have any ill intent but you know they're yeah. going to say what they need to say to make everything they're doing seem right <laughs> exactly and yeah. so i and that's what i kind of left that going if i wasn't the parent that I was again with my education background with my experience background I very well could have been a parent sitting there being like okay like I'll trust what you guys are gonna do and again that just puts my child at some serious risks and yeah, yeah. so yeah I walked I walked away with from that with this idea of like no parents need to know how to better support themselves through these kinds of things oh yeah oh my gosh I can see where that would be needed in a lot of areas, not just in what your daughter has. So um, if there's a parent that doesn't, that has a special needs child that may not be the same as what your daughter has, can you help them with that too? Because I would assume that the actions of supporting would be the same regardless of what the, the problem is, correct? Yeah, and so such a big thing for me is your child might have medical specialists and doctors, um, outside resources and professionals. And they're all, all, again, the expert or the professional of what they do. But your child is such an individual human being, despite their diagnosis, that is the same as other diagnosis. Your child still has their individual characteristics, their individual personality. And the only expert on your child is you. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, this kind of gives me chills to think that, you know, without you being there to help them, there's a lot of kids that are going to kind of fall through the cracks and um and be end up thrown into one of those special classes just because it's easier to do than offer them this help out here. Yeah, yeah. So, I'm so glad that you have kind of moved your expertise just a little bit to um to help with that because that's just mind-blowing to think of how easily we can be manipulated in a way to do things that maybe aren't the best for our child and ourselves because it affects the entire family when they don't get the right help when they're at school right yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you do, you know, there's a responsibility as a parent where you do need to understand your child's diagnosis. You do need to understand their needs. And again, sometimes parents are so overwhelmed with the behaviors and the things going on with their child that they really don't take the time to do that. And so again, it, it can just become this vicious cycle of, you know, the child's really not getting all the benefits that they deserve to be getting. The parents are struggling because of this. Like, it can just be snowball into like such a bigger issue. And um, so, yeah, for me, it's like, no, this, this really hits home and I can relate to this. And it, um, it, it, there is a need there, just like you said, there's such a need for, for that kind of support. So. Yeah. And with your life, um, your life coaching, you can kind of help the parents with dealing with all the stuff that's coming up for them as they're trying to advocate for their child. Absolutely. 
that's that's the hope so <laughs> yeah well it sounds like it's a perfect plan to me I mean because I, uh, if I had a special needs child I would be calling you for damn sure because you know it's um, it's one thing to think you know what to do or be totally lost, but to have somebody, a specialist in that arena to be there, you know, it's it's a like a, a game changer. I mean, I even find I don't have a special needs child, but I even find in business if I get if if I'm left to my own devices, it's like I don't know how to make this work. I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to do that. And it's easy to give up. Um, but you know, if you hire a, a coach, that's a specialist in business, which I've done, and they give me a thing that do this today and this today, and this is what we need to look at. And that's what we need to look at. Then I have a game plan that I can move forward and, and do what I need to do. So it's the same with this is that you have an expert that knows what's going on and they can actually give you like, these are the things we need to have in place and let me help you with this. And I know it's hard, but let me help you with that too. And so it's like, um, I, I, I just, the implications of the breath of fresh air that it would be for to know you've got somebody that knows what's going on and you don't feel so friggin' lost. It would mm -hmm. just be amazing. So I, like I said, uh, uh, I'm in awe because that's a big task to undertake and to, um, to been able to be there for your daughter and the way that you have, and then to see how it's important to be able to help other people that way, you know, cause I will be honest, you know, I, and maybe it comes from your uh, life coach already, but a lot of people, their first thought is not, well, this, this is something other people need, you know, mm -hmm. they, they would just think, well, I'm so glad I knew how to do that. They don't, you know, and, and you have that, um, that fortitude inside to, to want to help other people with that. So it, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it can be so from my own experience and journey with, Having a typically developing child and then having a special needs child, it can be really lonely because you feel like you don't have other parents who understand you. You don't have other parents who can actually relate to your experiences. And so even just that isolation, and again, this now ties into the connection piece of what I do, right? So even just that isolation of being a, a, a parent with a child with special needs, like that in itself is really, really a deep struggle that people have and it again just impacts how confident you start to become in dealing with your child's disability or disorder and again just so so many dots get connected very easily with that and um yeah my hope is to kind of build a, a little more of a support system and a little more of a community so yeah perfect well I'm so glad we got on here today so you could share this with everybody and so I'm going to be putting your links and everything in the comments, but for those that may be listening now, how can they reach out to you? Um, and then I will put the supporting information in the, um, in the comments. Yeah. So um, best way is probably through Instagram right now. Uh, I do have a Facebook page as well. So, I mean, if you're only on Facebook page, you can find me there, the connection coach. 
and um, Instagram, it's the connection coach SLB, I believe. Uh, so you can find me there and send messages um, through, through Instagram. All right. Well, wonderful. Well, Thank you so much again, Shannon, for being here. Um, it's definitely a blessing to connect with you. And there's the connection thing in, <laughs> in another way and a little bit more in depth, I guess. And um, so I definitely appreciate you. And I just love what you're about and what you're doing to, to help these parents that I'm sure they're... Um, when they hear this, it's going to feel like they've met their savior in a way, somebody that can really be there for them. So thank you again for that. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time today. too. Thank you. I appreciate it. My pleasure. So one of the ways I love to end my podcast is with this statement. The best way to predict the future is create it. So what are you creating? Mwah. <laughs>